Hello, my name is Larissa van den Hierik and I'm a professor of public international law at the Grotius Center for International Legal Studies at Leiden University. In this lecture, I would like to discuss international commissions of inquiry. So international commissions of inquiry are independent fact-finding bodies operating in situation of international concern. Their institutional roots can be said to date back to the Hague Peace Conferences of 1899 and 1907. Now, when we are discussing fact-finding in a 21st century setting, of course, the first thing that we can observe is that we are in this era of cyberspace, modern technologies that offer many opportunities for new types of connectivity, creates new ways of sharing information, and there's a greater accessibility to data than ever before. Yet, we're also living in a time uh, marked by allegations of misinformation, hacking, fake news, and alternative facts. So in this setting, the importance of fact-finding, having independent institutions and mechanisms in place to establish facts that are shared, is perhaps also greater than ever. And so the question that underlies this lecture is, what does and can international law and the institutions that we have built offer in this respect? And how do these institutions navigate between the opportunities and the risks of our cyber age? Now in this lecture, we will examine how international commission of inquiry have diversified over the course of the last century, and we will explore what function they perform in the present day international legal order. And we will see that many contemporary inquiries are currently established by the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. And we will contrast these inquiries with other fact-finding models in different institutional settings. So the lecture is structured in three parts. We're looking at the past, the present, and tentatively also at the future. But first, a preliminary observation. If we talk about fact-finding, we have to ask ourselves what is a fact and how can it be found? With this question, undoubtedly, we enter the philosophical domain, where we are taught that facts cannot be objectively stated, and that whenever we are stating a fact, there's always the human element of choosing the words to state the fact, which influences then how this fact is presented and perceived. To illustrate this, we can refer to the wall opinion, the Wall Advisory Opinion of the International Court of Justice, uh, an advisory opinion asked by the General Assembly where the uh, ICJ was invited to pronounce upon the legality of the wall built by Israel. And during the proceedings, there was great controversy around the use of words, and specifically the use of the word wall. The ICJ showed awareness of this and it stated, the wall in quotation marks, the wall in question is a complex construction, so that this term cannot be understood in a limited physical sense. However, it continued, the other terms used, either by Israel, which used the word fence, or by the Secretary General, using the word barrier, are no more accurate if understood in the physical sense. So in this opinion, the court said, the court has therefore chosen to use the terminology employed by the General Assembly. And with this quote, the court showed awareness of how words can color facts. And with the above quoted section, it sought to neutralize choice of terminology. Now, beyond choice of words, 
we can say that there's also subjectivity in the choice of which fact is relevant and which fact can be ignored. As in any given situation, there are many facts that can be stated. So we can question whether, you know, in this area of postmodernity, facts can be stated at all. And on the one hand, it's a valid question. But on the other, and referring to Hannah Arendt's writings on the relationship between truth and politics, the premise for this lecture is that there are elementary facts that are somehow indestructible. That there are elementary facts that can be stated, that should be stated, and that should not be denied. So having made this preliminary observation, let us now proceed and start our exploration of this concept of inquiry in international law, which we will do, as said, in three steps. We start with the past, 1899, when this concept of inquiry was introduced by the Russian diplomat Friedrich Martens during the Hague Peace Conference. As is well known, at the Hague Peace Conferences, states endeavoured to hold the processes of militarization, and they discussed questions of disarmament, regulation of warfare, and the creation of new peaceful dispute settlement mechanisms. And it was in this context that this Russian proposal for an international commission of inquiry as a new institution fell on fertile ground. And as the intellectual father of the concept, Martens believed that an impartial establishment of facts surrounding international disputes would help to cool off emotions and prevent recourse to war. So the principal idea was firstly to win time, preempt exacerbation of a conflict, but also to clarify facts before diverging appreciations and presentations of a situation would lead to a deadlock. So states agreed to that proposal and subsequently it was regulated in the 1899 Hague Convention on the Pacific Settlement of International Disputes. Now this Hague inquiry model was meant for interstate disputes. So these inquiries were consent-based and ad hoc. States could agree to establish an inquiry into a specific incident or situation. And then commissioners would be appointed and this would be done in the same manner as in arbitration, which is that each party to the disputes would select two commissioners, and those commissioners would jointly select a fifth one. Initially, the Hague regulations uh, stipulated that working methods and procedure would be established ad hoc per inquiry, but later, in the 1907 Hague Convention, there was a more uh, standardized procedure. Uh, so the Hague rules provided that inquiry reports had to be limited to statements of facts. Uh, and the idea was that the exercise of inquiry would not deal with questions of responsibility or blame. As it was thought that those kinds of matters were more suitable for arbitration. Um, the idea would also that uh, the inquiry reports would be not binding on states and states would be free in their choice of what effect was to be given to the inquiry reports. Now, some inquiries took place pursuant to the Hague Rules, in particular concerning naval incidents, like for instance the Doggerbank inquiry that was established by the United Kingdom and Russia. Those inquiries in practice uh, actually deviated from the model in the Hague Conventions in a number of ways, and most remarkably, perhaps, the Doggerbank inquiry was actually asked 
precisely to examine questions of responsibility. So in practice, the Hague model, we can say, was further developed. Then up to 1940, we see further variations, with some states signing up even to compulsory inquiry procedures in, uh, for instance, the Briand treaties. So these initiatives also aimed to facilitate international dispute resolution between states. And the function of inquiry facilitating dispute resolution can also be found today in the UN Charter where it's also uh, indicated as one of the measures that states can resort to, to resolve their disputes. Now, having explored the roots of the concept of inquiry and its dispute resolution function, let us shift our perspective to the present and explore the fact-finding panorama in our contemporary international legal order. Of course, today, the international legal landscape has expanded and diversified dramatically since 1899. International law has deepened, thickened, broadened in all directions. We have witnessed the rise of new international actors beyond states, perhaps most notably international organizations. And there are many new treaty regimes in existence, some of which establish judicial institutions, such as, for instance, the International Criminal Court. So in this more complex environment, we also find a diversification of fact-finding and commissions of inquiry. Today, we find inquiry as a modality of dispute settlement in specialized treaty regimes, such as, for instance, the Convention on Environmental Impact Assessment in a Transboundary Context that was adopted in ESPO, Finland, in 1999. Another example is the 1997 Convention on the law of non-navigational uses of international water courses. Lastly, we may refer to the Convention on International Civil Aviation, that's also known as the Chicago Convention, which also provides for inquiry in cases of incidents with aircrafts. Now, all these treaty-based inquiry exercises are generally technical in nature, and the commissions that are established are composed generally of scientific and technical experts, who offer their opinions based on accepted scientific principles. Now, it's very interesting if we focus specifically on the Civil Aviation Convention. There we see that the Annex 13 to this convention, that's also as said called the Chicago Convention, this annex expressly stipulates that inquiries into aircraft accidents shall not deal with questions of liability or blame. Thus echoing the Martens model as laid down in the early Hague Conventions. Other treaties provide for fact-finding to to, for other purposes. For instance, to monitor uh, parties' compliance with their obligations. So, by way of example, we find fact-finding missions that may be established pursuant to the Chemical Weapons Convention of 1992 to investigate alleged uses of chemical weapons. Another example is in the context of the International Labour Organization, which has a unique procedure whereby an inquiry can be established to investigate whether an ILA, ILO member state has violated its obligations in one of the conventions administered by the ILO. If a state then refuses to fulfill the Commission's recommendations, the ILO governing body may recommend action to secure compliance. A last example worth mentioning here is the International Humanitarian Fact-Finding Commission that is established by Article 90 of Additional Protocol 1 of 1977. 
Now, this Humanitarian Fact Finder Commission is a permanent standing inquiry body. However, pursuant to this uh, uh, treaty design, this mechanism, this commission, was actually subjected to very stringent consent requirements by states. And for that reason, for a very long time, the commission was not used at all. In the words of the late Fritz Karlshoven, who was professor at Leiden University and former president of the commission, this commission was a sleeping beauty, with some, he said, very unattractive birthmarks. But the sleeping beauty woke, and it did obtain its first mandate. On 19 May 2017, the fact-finding commission was asked by the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, to lead an independent forensic investigation into an explosion in eastern Ukraine that had happened in April 2017, and in which three members of the OSCE special monitoring mission were killed or injured. Now, the Commission's investigations and reports, according to its rules, are confidential and not public, as is prescribed in Additional Protocol 1. And the specific mandate of this Commission stated that it would investigate the incident against the background of international humanitarian law, but it also stated that questions of criminal responsibility and accountability were outside the scope of the investigation. So here again, we find echoes of the Martin's model of inquiry uh, as envisaged in the uh, early Hague Conventions. Now, in addition to these treaty-based models, commissions of inquiry are also established in the peace and security and human rights context. And these latter type of inquiries can be established by several UN bodies, particularly the UN Security Council, the General Assembly, the Secretary General, as well as, most notably, the Human Rights Council. Now, the commissions that are established by these respective UN organs operate under different names and they all have slightly different mandates. One of the most important commissions that the Security Council established was the Commission of Experts for the former Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. And this commission was mandated to gather information with a view to providing the Secretary-General with conclusions on evidence of violations of international humanitarian law. And ultimately, this inquiry led to the creation of the Yugoslav Tribunal, the ICTY. And a similar inquiry preceded the Rwanda Tribunal. The Security Council also established, beyond Yugoslavia and Rwanda, other uh, inquiry commissions, and uh, one last example that we can mention here is the inquiry on Darfur. Uh, and after the Security Council received the report of this inquiry, it referred the situation in Sudan, Darfur, to the International Criminal Court. Now, in addition to the Security Council, the Human Rights Council has been particularly active in establishing commissions of inquiry. Ever since 2006, when the Council replaced the Commission on Human Rights, we have seen a true proliferation of inquiries. While the former Commission on Human Rights only established two such inquiries, the Human Rights Council has created over 15, including, for instance, into different phases of the Israel-Palestine conflict, but also for Lebanon, Libya, Côte d'Ivoire, Syria, North Korea, Eritrea, South Sudan, Burundi, Myanmar and Yemen. 
Now, in all these commissions, there's quite some ad hocism involved in the establishment of the commissions, as well as the mandate of each commission. Often, also, their working methods differ to a greater or lesser extent per situation. Nonetheless, there are some general traits. Mostly, these commissions are instructed to investigate alleged violations of international law, in particular human rights law, but also international humanitarian law and international criminal law. Commissions of inquiry are often also asked to make recommendations, for instance, on the question of how to ensure that those responsible for violations are held accountable. The mandates of the Commission of Inquiry, established by the Human Rights Council, thus look quite different if we compare them to the Hague model. The contemporary Human Rights Council inquiries are mainly geared towards not dispute resolution, but encouraging compliance with human rights, and also towards catalyzing efforts to enforce responsibility for violations of international law including accountability of individuals under international criminal law. Yet, like their early Hague counterparts, the Human Rights Council Commissions do not have independent coercive powers and their reports are not binding in themselves. While it's not necessary for concerned states of Human Rights Council inquiries to consent to the establishment, uh, commissions of inquiry must, of course, rely on state cooperation when gathering information and, crucially, they must also have the consent of states to enter the territories of states under scrutiny. So, when states object to the establishment of an inquiry by the Human Rights Council, and it has happened several times, then they may also refuse to cooperate. And in these situations, commissions have had to find uh, ways to investigate the situation without stepping foot inside the territories of the states under scrutiny. Now, some of these commissions develop alternative strategies and, for instance, they have interviewed victims and witnesses in third states in the diaspora. And they've also conducted telephone interviews with people inside the states. In addition, they have examined information in the public domain, reports by UN agencies and information provided by non-governmental organizations. Now, new technologies such as satellite imagery, 3D mapping, social media, big data represent, of course, new information gathering opportunities for these contemporary commissions of inquiry, but they also present new challenges for verification and corroboration. So, the innovation and concomitant challenges are, of course, not unique to inquiry only. We also see that the ICC for instance, uh, uses these new technology measures and it has recently released its first arrest warrant based um, entirely on evidence collected from social media. So we may expect in the future significant developments in fact-finding processes, both in the context of inquiry commissions as well as in the context of other uh, institutions such as international courts. Now, as mentioned, based on their findings, Commission of Inquiry reports uh, they, they report to the mandating authority uh, that established them and uh, they make recommendations. Now, very often what we see is that Commission of Inquiry not only make recommendations to the Human Rights Council, but the recommendations also stretch to other actors. For instance, of course, to the concerned states, but also to other UN bodies, the international community of states, 
domestic actors in third states. And we even see a practice of commission of inquiry making recommendations to multinational corporations. For instance, those that invest or operate in the state subject to the inquiry. Then what happens to those recommendations? Now, in terms of follow-up, we can identify perhaps an uneven uptake of recommendations in practice, which of course to some extent reflects wider political, geopolitical uh, interests and pressures surrounding inquiries. Nonetheless, we may say in general that commissions of inquiry have been successful in raising alert regarding certain situations of uh, atrocities in particular. And in those situations, they have at times also effectively mobilized and built momentum for more concrete direct enforcement action. For instance, through international courts, as happened in the former Yugoslavia and uh, Darfur, the examples that we mentioned. Now, in other situations, uh, there have been other responses to recommendations of commissions of inquiry. And these responses, we see them at the international level, the national level. We can see more formal responses, informal responses, uh, more direct responses, or more indirect and unanticipated, or perhaps even unintended consequences. Perhaps to name one follow-up of a, a consequence or a next step that was not concretely envisaged by a commission of inquiry, but that did build on the broader aims for which the inquiry was established, is uh, in the context of Syria. The Syria Commission of Inquiry is quite special because of its long existence. And on several occasions, this commission um, recommended that the situation be referred to the International Criminal Court. Now, this recommendation did not materialize, but what we know is that the General Assembly, instead of the Security Council, did ultimately establish an international, impartial and independent mechanism for, to investigate the uh, situation of Syria. And this mechanism, the IIIM, is different from a commission of inquiry as it has a specific task to collect and analyze evidence of violations and prepare files to facilitate criminal proceedings. But of course, even though it's different, it does build upon the work of the Commission of Inquiry and uh, the Commission of Inquiry recommendations helped in establishing the mechanism as such. Now, this survey of broad, rich practice, modern practice, shows that we have come a long way since international inquiry was first conceived at the Hague Conference of 1899. And in many ways, the Commission of Inquiry that we see now today, those established by the Human Rights Council, are different from the Hague model, as we can call it. They generally look into situations instead of concrete incidents. And perhaps we can say that they are less diplomatic in nature. Human Rights Commission of Inquiry are not consent-based and their composition is not determined by states. Moreover, in contrast to the Hague model, these commissions established by the Human Rights Council are specifically mandated to use law and to report on questions of responsibility and accountability. They use human rights law to frame their fact-finding exercise. But beyond those fundamental differences, there are also some core features of inquiry that remain. Inquiry reports are non-binding, they're situated within a broader process of global politics and justice, but essentially, the common feature is this. Inquiries can offer an independent account of what happened. So then, some last words on the future. And we conclude this lecture by contemplating on the future specifically of international inquiry. We can, of course, say 
that the proliferation of international courts has reduced today the space for international inquiry. After all, the argument can be made that international courts like the ICJ, the ICC, ITLOS are perhaps better versions of international commissions of inquiry because they do not only establish facts, but they also decide on legal consequences. However, we also know that international courts may not always have jurisdiction to deal with a certain dispute or to engage with a certain situation. Moreover, there may, in certain circumstances, exist a preference for institutional engagement other than judicial enforcement. And inquiry commissions can also work in tandem with a court or assist the court in fact-finding processes, to the extent, of course, that the evidentiary rules of courts allow this. So in any event, there does not necessarily seem to be direct competition between international courts on the one hand and international commission of inquiry on the other. So there is a future, we can say, but then the next question is, what does it look like exactly? And how will commission of inquiry operate in a 21st century setting? As already referred to, we have of course witnessed the enormous technological developments in recent years, and we are only starting, probably, to understand their huge fact-finding potential. We might imagine in this setting that the analog approach to fact-finding, so speaking with individual witnesses and victims and manually corroborating documents, that this approach will to some extent make way for the age of big data and its attendant challenges. We may also see the emergence of new information gathering initiatives that are not led by a single authority, but they are instead generated by a community of individuals. And this democratization or privatization of human rights fact-finding may challenge our understanding of how facts are substantiated and even the type of facts that we are able to find. So we may need to discuss in this setting what is the best way forward. But I do think that in this age of unlimited information and increasingly also an age of misinformation, the original value of independent fact-finding cannot be underestimated. I thank you for watching.